You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's summer, 1819, in New York. A group of politicians are gathered in the parlor of a private residence in Manhattan. But this is not a social affair. It's strictly business. In New York, the Democratic-Republican Party is fractured. The Republicans, as they often call themselves, are split into two camps. Those who support Governor DeWitt Clinton and those who don't. The leaders of the anti-Clinton camp, also known as the Bucktails, are here to listen to Vice President Daniel D. Tompkins speak. Tompkins is the Bucktail candidate meant to dethrone Governor Clinton in the upcoming gubernatorial election of 1820. New York State Representative Martin Van Buren, the leader of the Bucktail faction, holds court. Gentlemen, do you know what the two happiest days are in the life of a governor? No, tell us. The day he's elected and the day he's voted out. What do you think of Vice President Tompkins? He's far more palatable than Mr. Clinton, to be sure. But who isn't? (laughs) Huh. Excuse me, gentlemen. Van Buren heads for the front door. He can barely make out the shadowy figure standing in the obscure evening light. Excuse me, sir. Is this the home of Jonathan Thompson? Mr. Wilkins? Is that you? Indeed. It's Martin S. Wilkins a longtime supporter and friend of Vice President Tompkins. How do you do, sir? How do you do? Mr. Wilkins, I do believe you made some strange mistake in coming here. This is the home of Jonathan Thompson, is it not? Indeed it is, and I am not mistaken. Yes, sir, but you see, there is to be a democratic meeting here tonight, and I am very sure that you do not go to such gatherings. That's true enough, Mr. Van Buren. Uh, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, sir. I don't care a damn for your democracy, but I take interest in the success of honest men and believe my old schoolmate Daniel D. Tompkins to be one of that sort. I come here tonight to be confirmed in that opinion. Well, I suppose we have common cause in that. Please, Mr. Wilkins, do come in. In the election of 1820, DeWitt Clinton would keep his governorship. Tompkins would settle for remaining vice president He and Monroe would both be elected to a second term. But Van Buren's use of the word democratic in this late evening conversation on the stoop of Jonathan Thompson's home was no accident. In 1820, all across the nation, the Democratic-Republican Party was beginning to fracture into two factions, those who wanted to expand the role of government and those who wanted to limit it. The latter group, made up of men like Van Buren, was largely comprised of constitutional conservatives. And as early as 1820, they began to adopt the label Democratic over the label Republican. Though the modern-day political party known as the Democrats would not officially form until the election of 1828, it might be said that its origin story takes place in the tumultuous election of 1824. Wicked Game is sponsored by Factor. You know that nursery rhyme, peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, peas porridge in the pot nine days old? 
Well, the first thing you need to know is that peas porridge was a real thing. Second, it's spelled P-E-A-S-E, a Middle English plural noun like flour, but made from legumes like peas. Third, it was the ultimate in medieval convenience food. Boil up anything you had in a single pot until you get a viscous slime, eat what you can stand, then just keep eating. Hot or cold, throwing in more stuff as you go. Nine days old may not be an exaggeration. So convenient, but not tasty, and maybe even rancid. These days, we are so much better off with Factor. Same convenience, much more taste, and a lot less gross. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. Chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door with over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, vegan, veggie, and more. And there's even more to enjoy with 55 nutrition-packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious and certainly better than throwing whatever you can scrounge into a pot. Head to factormeals.com slash wickedgame50 and use code wickedgame50 to get 50% off. That's code wickedgame50 at factormeals.com slash wickedgame50 to get 50% off. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? It could come at any time, in the morning, midday, in the evening. You could sleep in. You could actually take a lunch. You could go on an evening walk. I'd like to say I'd take a nap or read a book, but knowing me, I'd probably end up working, because there's always work to do, right? A lot of us wish we had more time. But time for what? Do you know what's important to you? How to make it a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. During James Monroe's second term, the so-called era of good feelings came to an end. But the end of Monroe's second term also marked the passing of another era. He was the last founding father to serve as president. A new generation of Americans were coming into their own. As one contemporary observer noted, these younger Americans grew up animated with love of country, unaccustomed to party discipline. And on the national scene, the Federalist Party, the party of Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, was all but dead. The Republican Party was the only real option. But this new breed of American would not bow to the master of party loyalty. These up-and-comers looked instead to public opinion. And on difficult questions such as the role of the federal government, the opinions of the electorate were divided along regional lines. In the North and Mid-Atlantic states, protecting the industrial economy was paramount. Many Northerners resented the South for the immorality of slavery and the power it conferred on them. 
This resentment was brought to bear in the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which made slavery illegal north of the 3630 parallel. The South's priority was protecting the agricultural economy and the institution of slavery that fueled it. Most Southerners viewed the Missouri Compromise as a prime example of the federal government trampling on states' rights. These Southerners largely felt the same way about national economic policies like protective tariffs, the Second National Bank, and federal infrastructure improvements. In their minds, these policies helped the industrial North at the expense of the agricultural South. Alternatively, the West, still reeling from the economic crisis known as the Panic of 1819, was hungry for the government to intervene, to improve transportation routes, establish settlements, and to bolster their trade economy. Out of these disparate regions emerged five presidential candidates for the election of 1824. With their ascension, the old political establishment crumbled, and in its place, a new brand of American politics emerged. This is episode 10, 1824, the end of an era. During the election of 1824, a newspaper in Tennessee published an anonymous article likening the upcoming election to a horse race. On a certain day, a jockey race would be run over the United States track. The entrance fee, gratis. The purse of the race is the presidency of these United States. Any horse could enter, mares being accepted. As to weight restrictions, the horses could carry only what they could throw upon the nags of others. And as the article noted, there were five horses in the race. The Adams, a stout buttocked animal, was a horse of illustrious ancestry. The son of a president and a distinguished diplomat, John Quincy Adams, like his father, was anti-slavery and pro-industry, making him New England's candidate of choice. The Clay, a supple jointed fellow, was a bright and cheerful man with a stellar resume. The so-called Warhawk congressman had served as Speaker of the House, he had also played a vital role in the peace negotiations that ended the War of 1812. Additionally, he had been instrumental in the Missouri Compromise of 1820. As Speaker of the House, he advocated for internal improvements and higher tariffs to boost economic expansion. His bold vision for the country, which would come to be known as the American system, made him the man to beat in the West. The Jackson, a tall, slim horse, was exceedingly high-mettled. A national hero and war veteran, Jackson, Tennessee's favorite son, threatened Clay's dominance in the American West. And the Crawford, a tall, majestic beast, was seen by many as the horse to beat. Sprung from old Virginia stock, Treasury Secretary William Crawford was seen by many as their heir apparent to the long line of Virginian presidents known as the Virginia dynasty. Crawford's stiffest competition in the South was the Calhoun, a mere colt, scarcely bridle-wise. South Carolina's John C. Calhoun, war secretary under James Monroe, would later be known for his advocacy of slavery. In the early 1820s, though, he was known as a nationalist, having fought for protective tariffs, the second national bank, and a strong military. If Crawford was the front-runner, he was not the first one off the block. In December of 1821, Calhoun became the first candidate to publicly declare. And from the very beginning, Calhoun and Crawford supporters were at each other's throats. These conflicts would range from the political to the personal. And in the case of Congressman George McDuffie, a family friend of John Calhoun, things would even take a violent turn. 
It's Monday, October 21st, 1822, in Campbelltown, South Carolina, about two miles from Hamburg, just above the Savannah River. Two men stand a good distance apart, sizing each other up. One is William Cummings, a colonel during the War of 1812. The other is South Carolina Congressman George McDuffie. McDuffie and Cummings have dueled twice before, and both men are lucky to have survived. McDuffie can attest to that, as he has a bullet lodged in his spine from their very first duel. But McDuffie is still not satisfied, and neither is Cummings. They have exchanged heated words in the press, and among other things, McDuffie insulted Cummings by calling him a puppy. McDuffie's second looks to him. Are you ready, sir? McDuffie nods in the affirmative. The two men stand back to back and walk their paces. McDuffie turns to face his opponent. He raises his pistol, puts his finger on the trigger. But before he pulls it, he notices something is off. Cummings is in a crouch. His leg is pushed slightly forward. His knee is bent. Irritated, McDuffie calls out. Stop! But his second doesn't hear him in time. Fire! The ball passes right over McDuffie's head. His eyes flare with rage. I said stop! This contest is over! Cummings steps forward, fiery in equal measure. By God, it is not. I am not satisfied. I was not ready on the first exchange, Mr. Cummings. It would be improper to continue. You shall continue, sir. I shall not. I say you shall. I demand another round of fire. You are crouched over, sir, cowering. If I agree to another round, then you must agree to change your position. I will not change my position under any circumstance. Then this contest is over. McDuffie's walking away indicated that the duel was done, but the feud between them was not. One month later, McDuffie and Cummings met again in Campbelltown. They again stood paces apart and exchanged one round of fire. McDuffie missed, Cummings did not, and he shot to kill. Luckily for McDuffie, the wound wasn't mortal. He was hit between the shoulder and the elbow, his arm was broken, and if newspaper accounts are to be believed, it was nearly amputated. With the McDuffie-Cummings duels, the election of 1824 was off to a bloody and violent start. As John Quincy Adams would write, the feud between McDuffie and Cummings originated in the rivalry between William Crawford and John C. Calhoun for the presidential succession of James Monroe. In an anonymous article in 1821, Cummings had lambasted President Monroe's administration, including his war secretary, John C. Calhoun. McDuffie had come to Calhoun's defense, calling the article the handiwork of ignorant men who were the tools of Crawford. McDuffie and Cummings were both Republicans. Both were from the South, and both wanted to see a Southerner elected in 1824. But that is where their political similarities stopped. Calhoun was seen by his detractors as an advocate for expanding the role of the federal government. Crawford, on the other hand, was seen as the champion of states' rights and a limited executive. But while Crawford and Calhoun supporters fought it out over the South, Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson were fighting it out in the American West. After the War of 1812, the American West had seen massive growth thanks to a booming post-war economy, but the progress had stopped with the Panic of 1819. In the Western states in the early 1820s, money was scarce, trade was on the decline, and new settlements had stalled. In the minds of many Westerners, the Washington establishment 
had ignored their needs for too long. In 1819, the St. Louis Inquirer had written, It is time that Western men had some share in the destinies of this republic, and to take control of this destiny, the West needed a champion. Clay and Jackson both wanted to be that man. The Western states were not an insignificant voting bloc, but only if they were united. Altogether, they had one more electoral vote than New York and Pennsylvania combined, and in the event of a contingent election, a strong likelihood with five candidates in the race, the candidate who dominated in the West was well-positioned to win in Congress. Jackson's opponents were not naive to this possibility. Supporters of William Crawford argued that a House election was a repudiation of that essential defender of democracy, the National Congressional Caucus, or as it was called at the time, King Caucus. The Electoral College, as defined in Article 2, Section 1, together with the 12th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, requires that each state nominate its presidential electors by a method of their own choosing. These electors are then free to vote their conscience, independent of political affiliation. At least, that's how it was supposed to be. King Caucus, invented by the Jeffersonian Republican Party in 1796, had changed that. Instead of electors voting independently, they were now expected to vote for a party's nominee, a nominee selected by congressmen in a national assembly in Washington. As a political strategy, King Caucus had worked. And with the help of this system, Republicans had won every presidential contest since Thomas Jefferson's election in 1800. But by the early 1820s, the nation was hungry for a more democratic system, one that didn't rely on Washington politicians to decide. The people were tired of their states bowing to the will of Washington, and they were hungry for a change. On the state level, Americans had already begun to abandon another long-standing political tradition, choosing electors through the state legislature. Since the election of 1789, states had nominated their electors in two ways, a statewide popular vote or through a ballot of the state legislature. Though the state legislature method had been the most common in the early elections, by the election of 1824, all but six states had surrendered the choice of choosing presidential electors to the people. One of those six states was New York. But in the midterm election of 1823, the people of New York were determined to take their power back. At that time, the most powerful man in New York politics was Senator Martin Van Buren, future president of the United States. Van Buren understood a political reality in America. The best way to win the White House was to forge an alliance between New York and the Old South. This method had worked for Jefferson and it had worked for Monroe. Both were Virginians and both had running mates from New York. Van Buren's strategy, or the combination as he called it, was to bring together the planters of the South and the plain Republicans of the North. In the spring of 1823, Van Buren sought to unite them again behind Treasury Secretary William Crawford. Van Buren traveled to the South, forging alliances with the old Republican leadership and galvanizing support for Crawford. In April of 1823, Van Buren traveled to Washington to meet with Crawford face-to-face -face and officially declare his allegiance. That same month, Van Buren sent the New York state representatives, the men responsible for choosing New York's presidential electors, a series of resolutions confirming two key points. One, New York would support a national congressional caucus. And two, New York's electors would pledge to support the national candidate, no questions asked. If New York and Virginia combined their efforts, Van Buren reckoned, 
King Caucus would carry Crawford all the way to the White House. But what Van Buren did not account for was the change in political winds, the growing anti-caucus sentiment that would threaten to derail all of Van Buren's plans. On October 3rd, 1823, New York's Sixth Ward began a meeting to select delegates to attend the party's state nominating convention later that month. But at that meeting, all hell broke loose. A crowd of protesters demanded a new electoral law that would jettison New York's long-standing legislative selection process in favor of a popular vote. The Sixth Ward's chairman was forcibly removed and things turned violent. Similar anti-caucus protests happened at ward meetings all across the city, and they worked. As a result, over half of New York's ward delegates were anti-caucus men, and at the nominating convention in October, a riot ensued when scores of these anti-caucus champions shouted down the chairman. After the convention, the anti-caucus movement began calling themselves the People's Men. They gave Martin Van Buren and the pro-caucus camp a name as well, the Albany Regency. In late October 1823, Van Buren's longtime nemesis, Governor DeWitt Clinton, wrote in his diary, The reign of King Caucus is at an end. The people have taken their concerns into their own hands. In the midterm election of 1823, the People's Men made significant gains in the New York State House and Senate, enough to get the popular vote law to the State House, but not enough to carry it the rest of the way. In committee, Friends of the Albany Regency crippled the People's Men's popular vote bill by adding an amendment. To win New York's electoral votes, a candidate would have to achieve a majority of the total votes. With so many candidates in the race, the Regency knew that outcome was highly unlikely. And if no majority was achieved, New York would forfeit its electoral votes. Therefore, the bill never stood a chance, and that was the entire point. In a stroke of clever politics, the State House was paying lip service to the anti-caucus movement while sentencing the bill to death in the State Senate. As expected, the bill passed the State House, but the State Senate shot it down. Albany had maintained its grip on power. The legislature would decide the electors, not the people. But the Democratic wave sweeping across the nation would not die in the New York State Assembly. In an 1823 anonymous essay titled Letters from Wyoming, Tennessee Senator John Eaton asserted that a deep and fatal game was playing at Washington with the liberties of the people. To stay in that game, the people's movement would need a champion, and they'd find one in a candidate who had largely been written off by the national political establishment, General Andrew Jackson. Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. 2024 is going to be a watershed year for my business. We've hired up, made ambitious plans, and that means, yes, new podcasts. But also, we crossed a point of complexity that's made it more important than ever to know our numbers. Because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. 
head to netsuite.com slash elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections. netsuite.com slash elections. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. During the election of 1824, in keeping with precedent, none of the five candidates openly campaigned, leaving their advocacy to their surrogates and supporters. In polite Washington, another type of campaign played itself out at dinners, parties, and fancy balls. Senator Eaton, the author of Letters from Wyoming, expressed his reservation about these social gatherings. Oh, it is too abominably bad to see gentlemen electioneering for this high office. Time was when the virtue of the people would have laughed to scorn such attempts. But times, alas, are altered. In December of 1823, Andrew Jackson arrived in Washington to play his part in the game. On January 8, 1824, John Quincy Adams and his wife held a ball in honor of the anniversary of Andrew Jackson's victory at the Battle of New Orleans some nine years prior. Thousands of guests attended to honor Jackson's service. Adams was playing smart politics. It was a public show of generosity to an opponent. It also gave Adams a chance to put to rest persistent criticism that Adams was aloof and unapproachable. The ball was a chance to prove he was just the opposite, and to drive the point home, Adams wore plain clothes instead of a tuxedo. But Adams had another motive for honoring Jackson. He needed a running mate, and he was starting to like the sound of Vice President Jackson. But the ball Adams threw had an altogether different effect. According to Jackson biographer James Parton, the Adams ball elevated Jackson from the comparatively vulgar place of a meteor in the atmosphere of Earth to the position of a fixed orb in the firmament above. From that moment, he began to be thought of as a candidate for the presidency. Jackson himself would attest to the turning of the tide. I am told the opinion of those whose minds were prepared to see me with a tomahawk in one hand and a scalping knife in the other has greatly changed, and I am getting on very smoothly. But things were not so smooth in Congress. The question of King Caucus was a big issue facing them in the early part of 1824. The national congressional system had been successful for decades, but it was also clear the people were turning against it, seeing King Caucus as a tool of the elite to stifle the will of the people. This turn of popular opinion was having an obvious effect. In 1816, less than two-thirds of Republican members of Congress had bothered to attend the National Caucus. In 1820, attendance had been less than 50%. Early in the congressional session, New York Senator Martin Van Buren had taken Congress's temperature on the question of a national caucus. What he found had alarmed him. Now, less than one quarter of members in both houses pledged to attend. There had even been calls for Congress to formally strike down King Caucus, but the vote had been delayed till later in the session. In the interim, Van Buren had hoped to rally Congress around the caucus and his candidate of choice, William Crawford. But the winds of change were too strong for Van Buren. In early February 1824, a majority of congressmen officially declared they would not attend a national caucus. Crawford's people pushed ahead anyway, and on Valentine's Day, the national caucus was held in the House chamber. The viewing gallery was packed with spectators. 
but the House floor was just the opposite. Only 60 congressmen attended, mainly from Virginia, North Carolina, and Crawford's home state, Georgia. Crawford walked away with a mere handful of electoral votes, but a vice presidential running mate, Albert Gallatin, Thomas Jefferson's treasury secretary and the former U.S. minister to France. Gallatin would write that the poorly attended caucus furnished a pretense to attach to the whole the odium of being an attempt to dictate to the people. King Caucus was dying, as were Crawford's hopes of winning a clear electoral majority. The people's movement had spread across the country, and the people's candidate, Andrew Jackson, would reap the benefits in the key battleground state of Pennsylvania. His gain would be John C. Calhoun's loss. Pennsylvania, the country's second most populous state, was a must-win for War Secretary Calhoun. The young, dynamic nationalist had a lot to offer the Keystone State. Calhoun's policies were very appealing to Pennsylvania, a state that desperately wanted to boost its industrial economy and build up its infrastructure. In fact, for a time, Calhoun looked to be the frontrunner among Pennsylvania's political establishment. But Calhoun's lead would not last long. The people were making their voice heard, and Jackson, their favorite candidate. As Senator William Plumer would observe, the movement in Pennsylvania was made by the people altogether and not by the politicians. A few weeks before the Philadelphia nominating caucus, Henry Clay predicted, Calhoun will be dropped in a few days' time. The course of events in Pennsylvania has rendered that inevitable. It is rumored that he means to lend his support to General Jackson. And indeed, the prediction would hold. Calhoun would bow out, and in his absence, his supporters would largely back Andrew Jackson. On March 4, 1824, at the caucus meeting in Harrisburg, Jackson won Pennsylvania 124 to 1. Calhoun's race was over, so instead he would focus his efforts on a bid for the vice presidency. Jackson's victory in Pennsylvania set off a nationwide wave of support. He saw gains in Tennessee, the Southwest, and the mid-Atlantic states of New Jersey and Maryland. Jackson would also gain Calhoun supporters in the Southeast. He would ride the wave of public sentiment all the way up to Election Day. Voting began on October 26, 1824. When the horse race was over and the votes were counted, Jackson was in first place. He won 99 electoral votes, 43.1% of the popular vote. Adams came in second place with 84 electoral votes and 35.5% of the popular vote. Crawford barely edged out Clay, winning 41 votes to Clay's 37. But none of the candidates had won a clear majority, and as such, the rules laid out in the 12th Amendment were put into effect. For the second time in American history, a presidential contest would be decided in a contingent election in the House of Representatives. The House would have to vote on the top three candidates, and so, in the final leg of the race, it was down to these three horses, the Adams, the Jackson, and the Crawford. Under the 12th Amendment, each state would cast one vote. With 24 votes total and 10 states up for grabs, it was still anyone's race. Ultimately, the man who would tip the scales was Speaker of the House Henry Clay. New Hampshire Congressman William Plumer would write, It is in fact very much in Clay's power to make the president. If he says Jackson, the nine western states are united at once for him. If he says Adams, two or three western states fall off, and Jackson must fail. Henry Clay might have been denied the presidency, but in the winter of 1824, he would play kingmaker.
It's December, 1824, at John Quincy Adams' office in Washington. Adams pretends to work to keep his mind off the news that dropped in Washington just yesterday. Speaker of the House Henry Clay will not stand in the contingent election. Adams, Jackson, and William Crawford will be the three contenders. But Adams can't pretend to work much longer. These have been a long line of busy, stressful days. He has real work to do, but also the constant stream of visitors who've been dropping in on him all morning. Secretary Adams? It's Robert P. Letcher, a former member of the Kentucky House of Representatives. Mr. Letcher, come in, please. What can I do for you, sir? Well, sir, as I know you know, I was the chief orchestrator of the census in 1820. Adams sighs. He knows exactly what Letcher wants. Remuneration. Yes, Mr. Letcher, I'm aware. Though I must tell you, there is nothing I can do in the way of additional compensation. Of course, sir. I, I would never prevail upon you for money, but there are other ways a man can be compensated. Hmm. Go on. I'd like to be named Marshal of Kentucky. All right. I will certainly take it under consideration. Thank you, sir. Good day, Mr. Letcher. But Letcher doesn't leave. He lingers. Is, is there something else you require, sir? Well, as I know, you know, sir, I'm quite close with Speaker Clay. We lodge at the same house. Oh, is that right? What are your feelings towards Mr. Clay, sir? Well, I harbor no hostility against him. Mr. Clay, I know, feels the same about you. He has spoken respectfully of you, and he's not a man to feign sincerity. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Mr. Clay is willing to serve you, sir, if he can also serve himself. If his friends can be assured that he will have a prominent share in the administration, that might induce them to vote for you, even in the face of instructions to the contrary. Adams shifts in his seat, uncomfortably. He's troubled by the offer of a quid pro quo, so he doesn't commit. Instead, he politely wraps up the conversation. <clears throat> well, you've given me a lot to think about. Thank you for coming, Mr. Letcher. Thank you, Mr. Adams. All I ask is this conversation remain confidential. Of course. May I call on you again to discuss this further? My door is always open to you, Mr. Letcher. Good day. Letcher and Adams would meet multiple times in the winter of 1824. On New Year's Day, 1825, Letcher called on Adams again and asked him if he'd be willing to meet with Henry Clay in private. Adams responded yes. He would meet him whenever it was convenient. On the evening of January 1st, 1825, Adams and his wife attended a party at the Williamson Hotel in honor of the Marquis de Lafayette, the famous French officer of the Revolutionary War. In a strange turn of events, Adams was seated in a chair by the fireplace right next to another attendee, Andrew Jackson. The two political foes sat in stoic silence, separated by an empty chair. The uncomfortable moment was broken when another guest, Henry Clay, planted himself in the seat between them. Surrounded by the who's who of Washington, Clay cracked a smile and a joke. Well, gentlemen, since you are both so near the chair, but neither can occupy it, I will slip in between you and take it myself. The crowd laughed. Jackson smirked. Adams was stone-faced. Later that night, Clay pulled Adams aside and said they should speak privately in a few days' time. Adams agreed, and eight days later, the two sat down face to face. The private meeting between them would set off a chain of events that would shake the political establishment to its core, cast a shadow of suspicion over the election, and put the final nail in the coffin of the Democratic-Republican Party.
If you're a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts also ad-free, like Her Half of History. Because even though Hillary Clinton may not have made history when she ran for president in 2016, there have always been women who seized power, spied for their country, created artistic masterpieces, even escaped slavery. Her half of history is perfect for all those who sat in history class and wondered, what were the women doing all this time? Because the answer is a lot. Get Her Half of History, Wicked Game, and many others ad-free at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. On January 9th at 6 p.m. on a snowy evening, Adams and Clay met in private at Adams's Washington residence on F Street. Adams would later write down many details of their conversation, though he didn't have too much to say. Half the page is blank. According to Adams, Clay mentioned that he had been repeatedly solicited by friends of Crawford, urging him to vote their way. Clay, Adams said, wished me to satisfy him with regard to some principles of great public importance but without any personal considerations for himself. In the question to come before the House, he had no hesitation in saying that his preference would be for me. Clay's use of the phrase, principles of great public importance, was likely a reference to Clay's ambitious national program, what would come to be called the American system. In his journal, Adams wrote that Clay came to him without personal considerations for himself, but it could have been clear that Clay had great consideration for the furtherance of his political policies. After learning of the infamous meeting on F Street, Andrew Jackson and his supporters would cry foul. They would accuse Clay and Adams of a quid pro quo. Clay would use his considerable influence as Speaker of the House to convince Congress to vote for Adams, and in exchange, Adams would make Clay Secretary of State. The corrupt bargain, as it would come to be called, would make the legitimacy of the election of 1824 dubious, and also make a scandal of the future presidency of John Quincy Adams. After his meeting with Adams, Clay did not publicly declare his intentions. During the first two weeks of January, he worked behind the scenes, taking meetings, lining up votes, and setting the table for an Adams victory. In mid-January, when word reached Washington that the Kentucky legislature had told their delegation to vote for Jackson, Clay didn't flinch. He remained calm and used his powers of persuasion behind closed doors. On January 24th, just days after committing for Jackson, the Kentucky delegation suddenly reversed course and declared their support for John Quincy Adams. The Jackson crowd was concerned, but in their minds, all was not yet lost. Two days prior to the House vote, on February 7th, 1825, Jackson's friend Senator Eaton 
held out hope that Jackson would carry six of the nine western states in addition to Maryland, South Carolina, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. As Eaton viewed things, Crawford didn't stand a chance of winning. So if Crawford's southern states, Virginia, North Carolina, and Georgia, defected to Jackson, he would have 13 votes, just enough to win. But what Eaton did not know was that in late December, Virginia Senator James Barber had told Adams that if it ever became clear that Crawford could not win, the Virginia delegation would back Adams. But Crawford was not out of the running yet, and Martin Van Buren was determined to make the best of a less-than-ideal situation. In a contingent election in the House of Representatives, each state casts a single vote based on a majority of each state's congressional delegation. But if a state's delegation cannot reach a majority, the state's vote is registered as divided and not credited to any candidate. Van Buren sought to use this to his advantage. Van Buren was confident that he could deprive Adams of enough votes to prevent him from winning on the first ballot. In Van Buren's estimation, this would give the Crawford bloc the power to sway the election and therefore to make their own quid pro quo demands. Going into the contingent election, Adams was likely ahead by a handful of votes. If Van Buren could prevent a few states from being counted on the first ballot, the Crawford bloc would have the leverage to ask for favorable terms from the Adams administration. And Van Buren's scheme would largely play out in the delegation of his home state, New York. Out of New York's 18 congressmen, the Crawford camp had eight votes. Van Buren needed one more vote to produce a tie. He focused his efforts on New York Congressman Stephen Van Rensselaer. Van Rensselaer had previously backed Clay, but when Clay fell out of the running, Van Rensselaer's vote was up for grabs. Van Buren pressured him and made him promise to vote for Crawford on the first round. Van Buren orchestrated similar schemes in several other states, including Rhode Island, Maryland, Louisiana, and Missouri. But as the voting day approached, it was Van Rensselaer in New York who was having second thoughts. And in this time of uncertainty, he would consult a higher authority. It's February 9th, 1825, on a frigid day in Washington. Outside, the snow falls. A group of spectators huddle in the gallery of the House of Representatives to watch the members of Congress cast their votes and decide the election of 1824. Among them is Senator Alfred Cuthbert of Georgia. From the gallery, he stares down at the floor, his eyes fixed on one man, New York Congressman Stephen Van Rensselaer. Just then, Martin Van Buren enters the gallery in a hurry. Senator Cuthbert, Mr. Van Buren, where is he? Cuthbert nods in Van Rensselaer's direction. The congressman fidgets in his seat, agitated. Uh, he seems distressed. The matter is settled. There is no cause for concern. No cause for concern. I've just spoken to our friend, Mr. Archer. Mr. Clay invited Van Rensselaer to the speaker's room just this morning. Clay is no doubt trying to twist his mind toward the issue of Mr. Adams. There's no need for you to intercede. I spoke with Van Rensselaer myself. When? Moments ago. He assured me that at no point had he had ever entertained the notion of voting for a man with the last name Adams. As you know, Mr. Van Rensselaer was, through his first wife, a brother-in-law to General Hamilton, and had, at an early age, imbibed his dislike to the Adamses. Familial loyalty is strong, but not stronger than the power of persuasion possessed by that Speaker of the House. Clay is a beaten man, Mr. Van Buren. He still has the gavel, and he still wields it and a considerable amount of influence over the gentlemen of this House. 
Van Rensselaer looked me in the eyes and swore he would adhere to Crawford. Trust me, Mr. Van Buren, he will play his part. God willing. After his conversation with Cuthbert, Van Buren stuck around the House chamber for the vote. He watched from the gallery as one by one the congressmen dropped their ballots in the voting box. The entire time, Van Buren's eyes were fixed on Van Rensselaer, who seemed, in Van Buren's words, agitated and distressed. Van Rensselaer closed his eyes and bowed his head in prayer on the House floor. When he opened them, he saw a ticket laying at his feet inscribed with the words, John Quincy Adams. Van Rensselaer would not vote with the Crawfordites. He would vote according to this divine sign, Adams's name inscribed at his feet. In the words of Martin Van Buren, in this way it was that Mr. Adams was made president. On the first ballot, Adams was elected president with 13 votes. Jackson received seven, Crawford four. The efficacy of Martin Van Buren's scheme and Van Rensselaer's role in deciding the election of 1824 has perhaps been overstated. Van Buren had tried to exclude from the first vote five states, New York, Louisiana, Rhode Island, Maryland, and Missouri. But even if he had been successful in all five, Adams still would have won. If Van Buren chalked up the election of 1824 to divine intervention, Andrew Jackson and his supporters would blame it on the corrupt bargain made by Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams. Jackson had failed to win the electoral vote, but he won the popular contest, and Jackson felt that Clay and Adams, through their dubious backroom deal, had conspired to defy the will of the people and steal the presidency from Jackson. Publicly, Jackson put on a good face. Less than a week after the final vote, Jackson and Adams crossed paths at a farewell party for President Monroe. The two men were polite and even shook hands. Privately, though, Jackson was outraged. The next day, he would write to a friend and advisor, the Judas of the West has closed the contract and will receive the 30 pieces of silver. His end will be the same. Was there ever witnessed such a barefaced corruption in any country before? Only a short period later, Jackson's suspicions were confirmed when Adams nominated Clay Secretary of State. The result of the 1824 election would be the end of the Democratic-Republican Party. It would die, and in its place, two new parties would be born. The West would unite with the South and with Northern conservatives like Martin Van Buren to officially form the Democratic Party, the same party that's around today. Moderates like John Quincy Adams would join the remnants of the Federalist Party to form the National Republican Party. Going forward, it would be these two factions in opposition. In the election of 1824, John Quincy Adams had won the battle. But in the election of 1828, Andrew Jackson would win the war. His ascension to the White House would mark the beginning of a new era in American politics. The age of the Washington elite would come to an end, and in its place, the age of Jackson would rise. This is episode 10 of American Elections Wicked Game, 1824, End of an Era. On the next episode, the election of 1828, Andrew Jackson's path to the White House is littered with adversity, animus, and political scandals that will rock his campaign and sully his reputation. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com?
And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free, like Wild West Extravaganza, a journey back to the fascinating, tumultuous, and often violent world of the American Old West. From famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James, to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok, to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, Wild West Extravaganza tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic era. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier, the good, the bad, and the ugly, ad-free at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck. 